Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. On that note, I do want to mention, um, pornography is a battle in our culture, in our world, for all of us. We all have to face it in some way. We are confronted by lots of links and access, all of us. And on our website, if you go to resources, there is a whole page, a section where we have a number of links for anyone. Uh, We did a series uh, a number of years back around pornography addiction and uh, have continued to keep those resources there. So if you need to dig into that or need to pass them on to someone else, please do so. Can we pray? All right. And we'll jump in to scripture today. Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, thank you for the ways you've already been leading us to yourself this morning, opening us up. We have sung and prayed prayers that our hearts need to pray. We have heard your truth, your grace, your character, your ways named before us in ways that our hearts have felt um, awakened to or maybe challenged by. Um, We have found ourselves wondering if that's really what you're like. And our hearts have cried out in ways saying we long for your wholeness, for your healing, for your life, for your voice. So as we come to your word this morning and what we're going to talk about, Lord, we ask that you would speak. I thank you that you've made us a body right here. You are at work in our life. We pray for other churches around our city that are gathered in moments like this, turning to you and your word. We ask that you would speak through your word and you would make Jesus uh, evident to us today. You would, Holy Spirit, lift up Jesus in our hearts and minds we would find our wholeness in you, all of us, together. For your glory, God, for the good of the world and our joy in you, come lead us, Holy Spirit. Amen. You know what's big when the speaker starts with a drink of water? I feel, I hope I feel like this every time I ever speak. I feel like today's message matters more than almost anything I've ever said, but I hope I feel that every week. Um, I think I often do. Um, if, you ha- if we haven't met, my name is Scott Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here. I typically don't teach much in January, and we invite other guests, and I use it as a time to pray and study and prepare for what the next chapter of teaching is, and that uh, begins today. So I'm glad to be speaking again. If you're just joining us today, um, we are, this is kind of part three of a somewhat unplanned extended conversation on sexuality, shame, relationships, singleness, and family in the church. Three weeks ago, Clark Shivey, director of Labrie, a local Christian study center for people who are exploring questions about Christianity or who are Christians but have questions that are holding them captive in some way or feel stuck by, we had Clark come and he spoke on the topic of sexuality and shame. Um, exploring it through the framework of creation, fall, Jesus, church. The following Sunday, Mark DeLeo, one of our own, spoke on God's vision for marriage with an emphasis on the challenges and the work and the grace of marriage, which is many 
are aware, uh, sparked a lot of conversation among us. Um, for many, deep appreciation for so much of what was taught about marriage, but also in the midst of that for some, some pushback, some questions, maybe some, not maybe, definitely, including some hurt regarding the implications of some of the conversation for those who are single or those who have experienced great pain in marriage. And I've appreciated the openness of our conversation, the humility of many in sharing, in confessing, um, in not attacking one another, but opening up needed conversation. And I want to say thank you to Mark for your humility and how you've engaged in that with me and with many others, and, but others too. Uh, it's good to have hard conversations. I want us to be a community where we can have the conversations we need to have to grow in our understanding and appreciation of God and his work and his ways and our lives and our brokenness and God's grace. And that's what we're doing. And it's been hard, I would say, to kind of process that together when we're not actually together. And so this morning, I want to speak to a piece of this, and not simply for the sake of the single people in the room or online, but for the sake of every single person. My hat's off to Shayla for that great turn of phrase. And we need to do this today because how we think and feel and talk about singleness impacts all of us hugely. I want to share one story from Sam Albury. Sam is a speaker, writer, pastor that I hugely admire. Um, I've got a stack of his books. Here's one. Uh, he is himself single with no anticipation of getting married, though he'd love to. Uh, in the introduction to a chapter in his book, um, Seven Myths about, Mar about Singleness, he writes, Some time ago, I randomly met someone I hadn't seen for 10 years. As we caught up on a decade's worth of news, I asked about her kids. When I'd known her before, she'd had two teenagers who were now in their late 20s, so I asked her what they were up to. One of them is married, one of them is engaged, so they're both sorted. I was glad to hear they were both doing well, but my mind stuck on that last word, sorted. I guess I know what she meant. But it's hard to avoid the implication. What did that say about me? Am I unsorted? Comments like this, often unintentionally, tend to imply that we singles are a little like loose threads that have been left dangling and need to be tied up. It's like we're still awaiting processing. I share this story about a conversation and experience that happens way more often than we often realize, as a way to name the reality that in the church, we have often knowingly or unknowingly embraced, taught, believed, promoted ideas about singleness that have been deeply unhelpful, if not at times hurtful, harmful, diminishing, many of which perpetuate certain stigma, shame, pain, or outright lies about single men and women and singleness itself. Case in point, the likely unintended implication of this woman's comment that this single man, well in his 40s, in the midst of his career, was because of his singleness somehow still unsorted. For many, this stigma, shame, and pain flows out of the ways in which singleness is often, especially in the church, spoken of in reference to not yet married. That's what we say single, we mean not yet married which implies that marriage is the expected trajectory goal that hasn't yet been achieved. 
not having not made the cut, not being chosen, being somehow incomplete, vulnerable, outside the circle, alone, lonely, without family, not hashtag blessed, not yet arrived, still in process, needy, a problem to be fixed. Oh, I'm so sorry. Hey, I think I have someone for you. Lost in a crowd, forgotten, invisible, sexually repressed or frustrated or both, and statistically less likely to be happy, healthy, and enjoy a long life. We'll come back to that later. Which might feel like a wild overreaction to an offhand comment that someone's adult children are sorted. But here's the reality. It's not about the one offhand comment or the unsaid implications of a biblical conversation about the challenges, work, and blessing of marriage. It is about the cumulative impact of singleness being so often viewed and spoken of, especially in the church, as either unfortunate, a deficit, or a problem to be solved with marriage. A loose thread left dangling and needing to be tied up for everyone's sake. But over the years, again and again, I've been challenged to rethink this considerably and not just challenged by my single Christian friends, though thank God for each of them, but challenged also by the teaching of the New Testament itself and even more so by Jesus himself. And above all, by this simple but often, often overlooked fact that Jesus was single and with that, celibate. I resonate with how Deborah Hirsch, I also have her book here, a wise Christian speaker, author, church leader, writes about this in her thoughtful book, Redeeming Sex. I'd commend this book to anybody. She writes, she says, as someone who has been married for 25 years, it's hard for me to speak about celibacy or the single life, but I will say that I am thankful that Jesus was a single man. Not just because he avoided putting a wife and possible children through the trauma of the cross, but because in him we find the redemption of celibacy and therefore of singleness. And as many of my dear friends, both gay and straight, are walking the single and celibate path, this gives them a deeper insight and appreciation of what Jesus experienced. Let's face it, she goes on, singleness in the church today, singles in the church today get the raw end of the deal. Not only do they have to navigate isolation and loneliness, but they have to do it in a context that by and large idolizes marriage and family and therefore focuses much of its resources and attention in that direction. And into this journey steps Jesus, a single man who not only redeems singleness, but also has the gumption to redefine family. And this is what I wanted to explore together this morning. And I'll be honest, I've had moments in this last while where I felt like, oh, Scott, you got to bring the master class on Jesus and singleness and the Bible and all that, and I'm not. I'm bringing two things. <laughs> Jesus is the only one who gives the master class, and I hope to lead us to him. And again, this is not, what I want to explore today is not f just for the sake of the single among us, but for the sake of every single one of us. Because as I hope becomes incredibly clear this morning, this is about all of us. And more than just us, but Jesus' life among us. And it, Jesus' life being experienced by us and among us, by all, and 
being witnessed to in the world. So first of all, let's linger on this simple but undeniable fact that Jesus himself was single, which I suspect many of us have never really taken seriously, maybe because we have knowingly or unknowingly put Jesus in this category all its own called incarnation, and understandably so, God in flesh. And because of this, his singleness seems irrelevant to us because he's God. What's he gonna do? Okay, but honestly, read the ancient stories of the gods, and many of gods uh, had many partners slept around. It is not a logical impossibility for a story to be out there of a god who partners up or hooks up or has sex or whatever. But uniquely, in the story that we encounter in Scripture, and the god who comes to dwell with us, Jesus, taking the form of human flesh, walks and lives his life as a single person. I can understand why we would put Jesus in the separate category, incarnation. There definitely are some profound uniquenesses to Jesus, right? And yet, one of the central purposes of the incarnation was to identify with us. Yes, to reveal God to us, but also to reveal to us what it means to be truly human what it means to be, what it looks like to live a life for the glory of God, what it means to be truly alive, fully alive to God, truly whole. Jesus is the revelation, not just of God, he is the revelation of human flourishing to us. It's why he's so attractive to us. And he did this, he lived this flourishing human life without being married. Which means, as Sam, Sam Albury argues, that marriage is not the sole answer to the observation, it is not good for man to be alone. Because God himself, the truly human one, Jesus, was single. And despite all the negative associations with singleness, as the gospel reveals, for Jesus, singleness didn't mean a life of loneliness, incompleteness, being unknown, cut off, unchosen, unwanted, uninvited, lacking intimacy, having no family. No, for Jesus, Jesus' singleness is marked by this, the riches of friendship and belonging and purpose and joy, love, adventure, blessing, sacrifice, wholeness, and suffering. But not because, primarily because he was single, but because he was godly. Because of his radical commitment to the Father's will in his life and for the world. So I wanna linger on two aspects of Jesus' singleness. First, friendship. And second, wholeness. Part of the challenge in our day is how often we equate intimacy with sex, or at least romance. But Jesus' singleness shows us that rich intimacy is possible apart from sex, or romance for that matter. Again, to quote Sam Albury, hookup culture means that we can be very, it can be very easy to have sex with someone you've only just met and barely know. It's possible to have lots of sex and no real intimacy. And the reverse is also true. It is possible to have a lot of intimacy in life and for none of it to be sexual. And this is what we see in Jesus. 
a life of deep friendship, companionship, community, intimacy, knowing and being known, loving and being loved with both men and women. Imagine that. Friendship so deep that in John chapter 11, we're told that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and none of these were his relatives, his cousins. Their friendship was that real, that rich, and that known to others. Two verses earlier in John 11, verse three, when Lazarus falls sick, Mary and Martha call for Jesus, explicitly saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love, Jesus, your friend, Lazarus. As Deborah Hirsch says, one particularly beautiful thing about Jesus is that his life is testament to the fact that being single doesn't have to equate being lonely, nor does it exclude enjoying deep levels of intimacy. Jesus, just like us, lived with the relation, within the relational fabric of community in order to sustain his full humanity. Now, by saying all of this, talking about Jesus' singleness in community, I am not wanting to say that for many, singleness is lonely, hard, alienating. We'll get to that. But in Jesus, we see an experience of a single man experiencing deep intimacy, friendship, companionship, life together, that we need to learn to seek to open ourselves to, together, for everyone's sake. Now, Ed Shaw, in a book on a similar theme, who is himself also a single Christian, talks about, he's a pastor, he talks about how he, over decades, has walked with women and men in his church, single, gay, straight, married people, how often he has encountered single, uh, sorry, loneliness in every one of those life circumstances, And he said, I'm always surprised how often married people can be so lonely, maybe because we expect that if you're married, you're not lonely, you don't need anyone else. But there's a lie there. We'll get to that. We need to learn from Jesus in how he opened himself up to and sought and received friendship. Singleness doesn't need to be a life of loneliness bereft of intimacy. Jesus himself shows us a different way. And let it be said in the culture of his day, as a faithful son of Israel, Jesus was expected to marry and have a child. I don't know if we realize this. I think we often think of Jewish rabbis, and Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. We often think of Jewish rabbis like um, Catholic priests. They are required to be celibate. That is not the case. In a Jewish culture, a person of authority who taught the Torah needed to have a family. Every Jewish man needed to have a family, have children. This was the mark, the viewed, perceived mark of God's blessing, and yet Jesus, knowing that, taught the Torah of God as a single man and demonstrated that marriage is not essential to glorifying God. And the other mark of Jesus' singleness that we need to linger on is the simple fact that in his singleness, Jesus was complete, Jesus was whole, not half a person, not less than, not still in process toward a dangling thread needing to be tied up. He was mature. And I point this out because so often, especially toward 
younger single men and women in the church, but maybe with many, so often younger single men and women in the church can be viewed as not yet mature, not yet truly adulting, not yet sorted, simply because they're single, as though singleness is just a transition phase before the maturity of marriage. But let it be said, some married folks have no maturity. (laughs) And that's humorous, but it's true. It is not a mark of maturity. The Apostle Paul himself, also notably single, teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that remaining single and celibate can be a place of great faith, great maturity, discipleship, service, witness. Douglas Webster wisely points out, instead of seeing marriage as a prerequisite for service, Paul saw singleness as a preference for service, something to be honored, valued, embraced, not looked down upon. It's what we see in Jesus, it's what we see in Paul, and it's what we see in the lives of so many down throughout history and in our own day. Honestly, for me, my faith, my life in Jesus has been so richly blessed by the friendship and the ministry and the example of godly women and men who have followed Jesus and never married, who have lived before me lives of great sacrifice, lives of great beauty, lives of great joy and blessing. I, Jocelyn, I don't know where you are, but I said to her at the break, I said to her at the break, thanks for being one of my heroes. Jocelyn is a a testament to me of the beauty of God. I, I, I look around this room and I can name names. Sue, you're one of my heroes. Brenda Lee. Uh, John Stott, my life's been so blessed by the teaching ministry of John Stott. Um, he, he passed away maybe 10 years ago now. And um, he was single his whole life. Uh, one of the most significant Christian theologians, pastor teachers in the last half century. Such a gift to the world. And in his memoirs, looking back, he told the story of how twice in his younger years, he had thought he was about to be married. And then, and both times those came to a close. And with great ache and agonizing, he handed that to God and sensed God saying, I have something else for you. And he bore that. He said that, that he bore that. There was hardship in it, but also there was life, blessing, community. I can think of friends I've pastored with, friends who've walked with me, who've been my mentors, who I've got to walk with. Um, Chet Ingram, Anjali Sethi, Ricky Chan, Sam Albury, uh, Henry Nowen, who was same-sex attracted, lived single and celibate throughout his life, serving the church with his, his gifts and his vulnerabilities. Thank God for him. Some for whom singleness was and is a cross born with tears. Others for whom it was a great freedom. But all who live their life unto Christ. Truth is, some of the godliest and most mature Christians I have known have been single and with that celibate. All that to say, I think as a church and as individual followers of Jesus, whether we are married or single, we need to redraw our vision of wholeness in the light of Jesus. Or more specifically, we need to let Jesus be our vision of wholeness and maturity. And he was single. One last thought on this, and I say this as a dad. 
whose kids are coming of age. I've been taking this to heart. I've been, I felt called to take this to heart more and more over the years and especially of late that my deepest prayer and dream for my son and for my daughter must not be for marriage but for them to be godly, for them to live in Christ wherever they end up, that they would come to know and follow Jesus with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength and find their wholeness in him whether or not marriage factors into that because Jesus alone is the source of wholeness and true human flourishing, not marriage. Which leads to the other big idea that I wanna explore And it relates to the pursuit of wholeness for all of us, and it's this. Not only does Jesus redeem singleness, but Jesus redefines family for all of us, which might be surprising in the light of what we've just considered, but Jesus isn't. None of this means that Jesus is anti-family. Jesus is very pro-family, but what he calls us to is a bigger vision of family, a more costly but richer Vision of family for the blessing of all that includes and involves all of us, regardless of our marital status or biological connections. And this is another aspect of Jesus' own teaching that I think we've often failed to hear or with that take to heart. And it's not just something Jesus teaches, but it's something that ultimately goes on to shape the whole of the New Testament, but often we haven't realized it. But it starts with Jesus. We hear it first in Matthew 12, Verses 46 to 50, Clark referenced this text a few weeks ago. Let me read it for us. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my, who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Honestly, for years I have been intrigued by this passage, but only recently have I realized that this is not just some odd, offhand comment that Jesus makes, but is actually the beginning of a revolution that Jesus is inviting his followers to participate in, to be caught by, to be shaped by. Jesus is inviting us into a radically different vision and practice and experience of family, one no longer bound, limited, centered in one's biological family, but in one's spiritual family, the family of Christ. Reflecting on this, Sam Albury writes, in my part of the world, Southern England, he now lives in Nashville, in my part of the world, Southern England, just as in many other relatively prosperous parts of the West, the assumption is that nuclear families are the basic unit in which we are meant to do life. With one, you're sorted. Without one, well, you kind of need one. And because this is the case, many people simply assume that family units are meant to be self-contained and self-sufficient. The aspiration is to have a wife or a husband, two and a half children, a black Labrador, and a nice house. Once all this is acquired, you have what you need for doing life. So you then pull up the drawbridge and live happily ever after. But, he continues, the self-sufficient nuclear family is not a concept we see in the Bible. 
Instead, we see that our family need, our spiritual family needs our biological family, and our biological family needs our spiritual family. And not just that those who are single need others, but we all do. We all do. As many are increasingly acknowledging, many marriages today are falling apart because of this idea that everything you need is to be found in that marital unit. That once you are sorted, you have all you need for everything that's coming. Pull up the drawbridge. But this kind of thinking makes an idol of marriage and idols destroy us. They destroy marriages. They destroy husbands and wives. They destroy people. And so Ed Shaw, who I referenced before, another wise Christian pastor and author, also single, says, it was Jesus himself who first used family language to describe his initial followers, the group that became the Christian church. The rest of the New Testament follows his lead by consistently using family language to describe both what the church is and how it should function. Think about the words used in the New Testament to describe Christians. 18 times in the New Testament, Christians are described as saints. About 10 times, Christians are described as believers. Four times, they are described as followers of the way. Only once in the New Testament are followers of Jesus described as Christians. But over 100 times, Christians are spoken of as brothers, siblings, family. Which tells us that Jesus' words in Matthew 12 were not an offhand response, but an announcement of a gospel revolution for his people, his followers, that we are all called into. I love how the Apostle Paul not only taught this in everything he wrote, but actually shows evidence of how this was his practice and his experience throughout his letters. In Titus chapter 1, verse 4, Paul refers to Titus, a young leader in the church, as my true child in a common faith. As one writer notes, Paul was single. He wasn't married, but he did have children. Titus was his true child. The language explicitly says that Titus was his legitimate child. And it wasn't just Titus. Paul also writes of this about Timothy, about Onesimus. Makes me think in my life of a couple named Alf and Marg Baines. Some of you might know their names. I believe they both passed on now. They were married for a lifetime, got married coming out of Bible college back in the long time ago. <laughs> but they never had their own biological children. But man, they had family. More family than most of us could ever imagine. I don't know why they didn't have their own children. Maybe they chose not to for the sake of the road that was ahead of them. Maybe they weren't able to conceive or bring a child to birth. I don't know. But either way, as the founders and directors of Camp Homewood on Quadra Island, they became spiritual parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents, siblings to countless, countless young people, teenagers, adults, young and old, those are the funerals where the family, whoever the family is, think, well, small room, but you end up realizing, oh my gosh, 
not enough room. Because they did family in the deepest way. Opened their lives. Didn't turtle in, close up the drawbridge, but opened their lives up to the people of God and the world around them. It's exactly what we see in Jesus. Exactly what the New Testament writers are envisioning and inviting us to discover and learn and live into. As Barton Preeb, my friend, and up until recently, the lead pastor of Central, explains in his brilliant study on adoption, it's a beautiful book, he writes, the most dominant metaphor of the local church in the New Testament is that of family. Not the body of Christ, not the temple of the Holy Spirit, but the family of God. And it's not just a nice, warm idea. It is a reality we are called to live into, to receive, to open ourselves up to and for and to be a family that involves, includes and involves all who are in Christ, all of us, men and women, married, single, young, old, and in between. I'm in between. Uh, depends, some of you think I'm young, some of you think I'm old. <laughs> and not just for the sake of the single, but for the sake of every single person, for the sake of every woman, every man, every child, every widow, every family, every marriage, every single parent, every senior, regardless of your biological fruitfulness or connections. As Deborah Hirsch simply states, Jesus breaks the fixation with mere biological bonds and creates a new family where all can belong by virtue of the redemption to, of, of their relationship to God through him. There can be no such thing as a single person in God's expansive family. Now, I'll be honest, I felt some caution about teaching this particular point because the church has often, in my experience and maybe in yours, not truly understood, embraced, pursued, or lived this. And so there's a caution in me to even name it because I don't want to overpromise. But here's the thing. This is Jesus' invitation to us. And more than that, this is Jesus' promise to us. And I say that, it's bold to say, but it is what Jesus himself says in Mark 10, 29 to 30. Let me read it for us. Having spoken to the disciples about the costliness of discipleship for all people and that all things are possible with God, Jesus declares, Mark 10, verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replies, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. This is a startling text. Notice Jesus' honesty here that following him will for all of us involve a cross, some giving up, some sacrifice. It will be costly, and if it isn't, then maybe we're not following Jesus. The following him will be costly, and one of the most significant costs will be relational, family. But notice, too, that the blessing we find, Jesus says, we will find, not might, but will, as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, is itself also predominantly relational, familial, a new family in Christ. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and field, along with persecutions in this present age and in the age, and in the age to come eternal life. As Lucy has often quoted, 
Psalm 68, verse six, God sets the lonely in family. But here's the beautiful challenge. And I'm quoting Sam Albury one last time here. He says, the fact is, we are the families of Psalm 68 in which God is placing the lonely. We are the mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters that Jesus is promising in Mark 10. It makes Jesus' promise quite unusual. There is a sense in which it depends on all of us, which is scary and beautiful, that this is what God is seeking to do. Not just close up the the drawbridge, survive what life brings, and get to enjoy God's embrace in heaven, but his spirit is seeking to restore us and turn us toward one another, all of us. Because we all need it. But also because God wants to use us in this. It's not that some of us are the needy ones and some of us are the full, I got a little bit more extra cup ones. No, we're all in places of need with something to give something that God is seeking to awaken us to in these days, I think. In truth, this is, this is my prayer in this moment, that God would use the pain, the tension, the misunderstandings of our shared life in this moment, in every season, to open us up toward one another more. Not simply toward the goal of greater understanding, but toward the goal of greater love, of greater, of growing into God's true spiritual family for everyone's sake. And this is the one part that I want to make explicit reference to something that Mark um, mentioned two weeks ago because I think it needs revisiting and it relates to a slide that ended up on the screen, was used on the screen with stats, which about, keep going. There, Russ, thank you. About studies showing that those who are married have... Uh, Stats are always involved. There's lots of caveats. Greater likelihood to experience health and happiness and a longer life. And as someone mentioned, there's something terrifying about this statement. A meta-analysis of 95 studies found that single people had a 24% higher risk of early death. That's the stat there which if read in the midst of a happy, healthy marriage can feel encouraging. But if read apart from that or to a view towards those who are not experiencing that, it could be and maybe should be devastating, deeply concerning. And that's, but that's where the conversation can't stop for us as a community of followers of Jesus. Because the gospel of Jesus Both Jesus' redemption of singleness and Jesus' redefinition of family compels us to not accept this for our brothers and sisters who aren't in the marriage unit. And I want to say, Mark wanted me to say this too. (laughs) That the gospel of Jesus, the redemption of singleness, the redefinition of family invites us to believe and to hope and to seek ways to change this stat, these stats for our brothers and sisters here and beyond these walls, that all who are called by Christ would know is flourishing, is wholeness, that we would be a people 
through whom God's blessing of life, wholeness, health, joy is extended and received for everyone's sake. In truth, this is why I, I love, you can skip to the next slide there, Russ, thank you. Um, why I love seeing many of us starting to gather in huddles to study the deeply formed life together, not because it's the best book, though it is a good book, but because in the process, as we gather together, as we open ourselves to God and one another, Jesus will be at work among us. And part of that work is not just giving us new ideas, but opening our hearts and eyes to one another. The needs, the hopes, the beauty, the gifts of one another and growing as a family in Christ. So before we share in the Lord's Supper, as our response, I just wanna pause right here and ask you, why did Jesus bring you here this morning? And I know you made a decision, most of you, unless you're my son or that, you know, that kind of situation. <laughs> or maybe, yeah. But why, why did Jesus have you here today for this? What in the midst of this has the Spirit said to you? Maybe there's a lie that's been spoken over. Maybe there's grace, hope that's been spoken. Maybe there's an invitation to action to not let that empty chair at the end of the table stay empty, but invite someone to take it. I've heard it said many times, growing as a family doesn't mean, as the church family, as a body, a family of Christ, doesn't mean adding to our lives a bunch of stuff, but it means inviting people to share it with us. It's something we all need to grow in, myself included. So where is the Spirit? What is the Spirit's invitation for you this morning? Let's just be still for a moment and then I'll introduce the Lord's Supper and I'll invite the band to come too.